You're listening to the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church, a historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of Faith and Practice hosted on the Old Antioch Podcast. My name is Zachary Groff. I'm a pastor here at Antioch and joining me in the studio today is my co-pastor, Dr. Joseph Piper Jr. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Always great, Zach. We have a, a, a list of questions here today covering uh, a wide swath of Christian experience and uh, of doctrine, and I'm excited to dive right into them. But before we do, Dr. Piper, would you please open our time together uh, in prayer? Happy to. Almighty and glorious God in heaven, you are exalted on high, the God of grace and the God of wisdom. We thank you that you've promised us as we ask for wisdom, you give it to us unsparingly. So we ask now, Lord, that as we enter into these discussions, that your spirit will uh, give us wisdom, insight into your word, faithfulness in answering, and make this broadcast profitable. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. All right. Our first question comes from Anonymous today. And Anonymous writes, for somebody who's new to the Reformed faith, what is the difference between the Old and the New Testaments, the Old and the New Covenants, and the Covenant of Works, and the Covenant of Grace? Is there any overlap? This is a big question. <laughs> it is. It might take the whole hour. <laughs> it could, but let's try to be brief. Give them the, well, the we'll 101. We'll try to be brief. Okay. <laughs> so the Old Testament, uh, the first... Uh, 39 books of the Bible that give the revelation from the creation of God through the end of the prophetic period in Malachi. These books then are part of God's progressive uh, historical unfolding of his purposes uh, in redemption. And... They're called the Old, just to put a contrast, and then from the New Testament, which are uh, the last 27 books of the Bible, beginning with the four Gospels and concluding with the book of Revelation, completing then in terms of God's uh, written revelation, uh, his redemptive uh, history, culminating in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the institution of the church today. Now, within the revelation of the two Testaments, there is the one covenant of grace. Now, I'm going to jump to the third question first, and the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Covenant of works was a covenant made with Adam uh, in the garden where God promised him justification in other words, that he would be legally righteous in God's sight and adoption as God's son. If he kept the probationary commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the only commandment that Adam had. He had the uh, revelation of God's moral will written on his heart, which he understood perfectly well, with further verbal revelation that God gave to him after his creation. When Adam broke the covenant of works, God coming to the garden then, although pronouncing various acts of curse and judgment, he did not curse Adam and Eve. He chastened them and entered into then what we call the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is God then accomplishing the justification and adoption and perfection of his people uh, through the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christ kept all the qualifications and demands of the covenant of works in order to do two things, to fulfill perfect obedience that was necessary and to pay the penalty of the covenant of works, which was death, if they disobeyed. That death was spiritual, physical, and judicial, ending in hell for all those that remained under that penalty. Uh, the covenant of grace, then, is one covenant, beginning in the garden when God promised uh, through Eve 
that through her seed, uh, he would defeat Satan. That covenant then is unfolded through various historical advancements. They're called covenants because they're administrations, but they're administrations of the one covenant of grace. So we have then with Noah, where God uh, guarantees a a structure in which he will accomplish redemption. He will not keep manifesting universal judgment, but um, be long-suffering with mankind in order to accomplish the purposes. Covenant with Abraham is the first overtly enunciation of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It was made with Abraham and his seed. There's a number of important principles there. Um, Abraham's the father of the church. The visible church is then established in the covenant with Abraham, as well as the principle uh, that God deals with us and our children. Although that's also established uh, both with Adam and uh, with uh, Noah. Then the Mosaic covenant is a further advance on that, where God now takes the people that have grown to um, millions in number and enters into uh, the covenant uh, with them by which he will r rule their lives uh, through prophets, priests, and kings, uh, gives a full orb structure of law to govern them, not just morally, but also as uh, a people under the tutelage of the Spirit to uh, see the types of Christ and to be separated from the nations and certain judicial laws. That covenant then is further enacted in the covenant with David, where God gives the principle of the Davidic king, who himself is a type of Christ. And actually, in the Davidic, all these covenants give new revelation with respect to the person um, and work of the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the Davidic covenant that his deity is fully revealed. The new covenant then is the covenant promised uh, in the Old Covenant, and it is accomplished then in the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one covenant um, through a series of uh, progressive revelations. Uh, in terms of overlap in the covenant of grace, uh, each covenant embraces what all was before it, but adds new things to it. So um, if you think of overlap, in that regard, yes, everything that was revealed to Adam was uh, further revealed in the Noahic covenant with additions. Everything in the Noahic covenant then repeated in the Abrahamic covenant with additions and, and so forth. When Christ came as the covenant head, he fulfilled all of the ceremonial laws of the old covenant. And thus they continue now in the life of the uh, either his perfect work or the life of a believer being sanctified. So is there any overlap between the old and the new covenant? What are those terms signifying for us? I don't think any more than what I just said, uh, that each covenant expression is repeated and added to. And in Christ, then, uh, everything that was promised in the other covenants is fulfilled and remains in effect for us outside of the ceremonial or judicial aspects of it. So when we say Old Covenant, we're referring to the Old Testament administrations of the Covenant of Grace. We're not referring to the Covenant of Works when we say right. Old Covenant, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, another question, would we say that Adam and Eve, their immediate offspring, Noah, his offspring, before Abram, before Abraham, would we say the elect in those generations were saved through faith in the promised Redeemer? Yes. So they're justified through faith as much as Abraham is, even right. though it really becomes explicitly clear with the administration right. of grace we call the Abrahamic covenant. Good, good, yeah. And uh, moreover, uh, many evangelicals say that they were saved simply by believing promises, but we believe that they believed in the promised Savior who was to come. The seed of the woman. Right. I mean, this is remarkable when... Uh, I'm you know, reading through the Bible now, the beginning of the year. I've gotten through Genesis. I'm in Exodus now. But when Eve, um, when she has a, a, a son after Abel's death, 
uh, or actually, no, it's when Cain is born, she celebrates that God has seemed to fulfill his promise that brought right. forth offspring from her. You see her expression of faith in a coming redeemer, even though she's misidentified who it is in Cain. And, and then there, um, and then in the naming of Seth, that's also a significant hope that is still yeah. alive uh, one within of the, that family. One of the, the things there, Zach, is um, the covenant always included the seed. So uh, right. that principle is never annulled. Moreover, in that seed, uh, there were also uh, uh, people who were not elect. Right. So right. Cain or Ham, uh, Ishmael. Um, Esau. Esau, yeah. And obviously in Israel, it was really the remnant that God was saving through the Mosaic Covenant. That's right. And I think a, a big difference now, in, in the Mosaic Covenant, the remnant were the converted, the elect. In the New Covenant, the remnant are those in the church who are not, I mean, the the uh, yeah, the remnant, the small part now is the non-elect, the great majority of people in the New Covenant, the covenant of grace, are, in fact, elect and saved. We serve a glorious God and a great king, and the glory of kings is in the multitude of a peoples. And so That's we right. know that there are many, many uh, that God has called and is calling to himself. Uh, saving well, the promise, yeah, the promise to Abraham is innumerable as yep. the sand of the stars, that it's going to be, it's not some small, pitiful group. It is a huge host. Yeah. When we get to heaven, we'll be surprised at how many people are there. Not that there's few in number, but that there will be many, many more than even we could imagine, I think, is the That's point right. there. Our next question. Very good. Thank you for that survey on covenant theology, Dr. Piper. I hope that was helpful to you, Anonymous. Our next question comes from Timothy Miller, a PCA deacon of Jacksonville, Florida. And he asks, what words of wisdom might you have for pastoral search committees in general? Uh, we've heard it said that pastors find new calls primarily through networking rather than through circulation of ministerial data forms through the administrative committee of denominations. If this is true, are there NAPARC groups and associations to which you might recommend uh, prospective or pastoral search committees and even candidates? I do agree that the best way uh, for a man to find a call or for a church to find a pastor is through networking. I don't rule out the use of the ministerial data form. I think, uh, particularly men that are out of seminary and seeking a call should fill out the form. The PCA has one. The OPC has a very similar form and, and give those to the appropriate offices in those denominations, but also have one yourself that you can then submit to uh, churches. You also uh, can look online. For example, at Greenville Seminary, we post uh, churches that are looking for uh pastors who would have the, the convictions of the seminary um, and um, there'll be other postings uh, and churches themselves will post things and so take initiative don't just wait for networking send your data form to uh, churches or men will recommend churches uh, to a candidate uh, we do that uh, at Antioch with uh, our uh, ministerial interns as well Yes, and uh, the PCA, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the uh, Bible Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Church U.S., the United Reformed Church of North America, the Associated Reformed Presbyterian Church, are all denominations uh, that would be looking, uh, congregations in those denominations would be looking for solidly confessional reform men. And so... Uh, send forms uh, to those denominational offices. Also, again, network there as well. Uh, we often will recommend um, a man to another denomination that has reached out to us and, and wants names. In fact, I've just been doing that with a couple of OPC pastors on the one hand and OPC churches on the other. We work a lot with RCUS and the Bible Presbyterian Church as well. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of places there. I uh, I prefer myself to be in a denomination that holds to the Westminster standards. That would be particularly the OPC, the PCA, and the ARP, and the Bible Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Church United States, and the United 
Reformed Church of North America hold to the three forms of unity that are very just compatible with the Westminster Standards, and that would be the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, and the Heidelberg Catechism. That's a great answer, Dr. Pipe, and I appreciate you bringing up all those different connections that Greenville Seminary has. I think those are that's a great starting point. And if, and if your church isn't already on the gpts.edu slash pulpits uh, open pulpit board, um, you should definitely get on there. And then um, recently, the Gospel Reformation Network for PCA churches, this is pertinent and relevant, and for men seeking calls in the PCA, the Gospel Reformation Network recently uh, began its own pulpit board, very similar, uh, more restricted to pastoral calls, uh, teaching Elder Wilson Van Hooser down at Grace Prez in Stillwater, Oklahoma, is uh, maintaining that. It's at gospelreformation.net slash networking is uh, the page. And you'll also see links there to the pulpit board for Greenville Seminary, for Westminster Seminary, and for RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, and a link to the PCA Administrative Committee's uh, services. Um, those links are all somehow affiliated with GRN executive council members. So, you know, if you're a church looking for a candidate, these are good places to have your opportunity listed uh, with these various seminaries and uh, certainly with the PCA. And then uh, in addition to folks like Dr. Piper, other pastors you know who are well-connected uh, within our Reformed world, uh, I always recommend our friends Bebo Elkin and Elaine Herring with Consulting Services Foundation. They do a great job helping churches and candidates uh, find suitable matches, and uh, they don't charge anything. It's all pro bono. Uh, they work uh, by donation and uh, are able to commit time to that. And um, and I really appreciate how they how they conduct their affairs uh, in these kinds of things. But yeah, networking is incredibly important. Actually, believably so. It's very important because what <laughs> yeah. are you trying to do? You're trying to make a connection. Where do you go for connections? You go to networks. And so, um, well, I appreciate that. I did know about the GRN. That's excellent resource. And um, Pastor Groff has a, a much wider, particularly amongst the younger ministers, network than I do. So, feel free to reach out. Now, a lot of churches contact us as well, and so feel free to. Uh, contact us here at Antioch as well, um, either to get your name put in places or uh, we have churches also that contact us. Yeah, we're always happy to help make a connection where it makes sense. And, and uh, also the uh, spring. Um, oh, the yeah, church. the spring yeah. theology conference. Yeah, there's a special session there at GPTS's spring theology conference um, helping talk through seeking for candidates or seeking for calls one way or the other, making introductions. Yeah, well, going also, to events is helpful. Yeah, I also was thinking about the uh, uh, the one that First Church Jackson does every April. Twin Lakes Fellowship. Twin Lakes, that's it, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah that, that's always a week it's after. part of their purpose. Yeah, it is part of their purpose, is, is helping men who are seeking a call and churches seeking candidates to make those connections. Um, as much as you could do, the better. But if you can't travel or no one on the committee can travel on behalf of the committee, um, there's a lot that you can do with the internet and phone now that would have been impossible to do even 25, 30 years ago. So. And also churches now are and others can make use of sermon audio. That way you don't, it used to have to be, you'd have to send the pulpit committee to a church to hear a man preach. Now you've got uh, sermons of the men posted on Sermon Audio, and so committees actually can begin their work uh, right there and trying to screen men. You know, I'm convinced that the best preachers out there are not putting their sermons up on the internet, so don't think that that's all you can find, but that is a great starting point, is uh, listen to the sermons that you can find there and elsewhere. All right, we'll move on to the next question. Great answers. I hope that gives you something to work with Tim and, and anyone else listening who's in a similar situation. Our next question is very, very specific. Um, but when it came in, I, I was thrilled uh, to get be given the opportunity for us to address this. This is from an OPC minister out in Sunnyvale, California, Cal Gallagher. And, uh, and Cal asks, should Christians ever feel free to use psychedelics? He goes on uh, to kind of describe what he's getting at here. Microdosing. 
these drugs is increasingly common among tech workers here in Silicon Valley, not so much for recreation, but for enhancing work performance. Here just, here's a description, uh, description of the practice from Wikipedia. Psychedelic microdosing is a practice of using subthreshold doses, microdoses, of serotonergenic psychedelic drugs in an attempt to improve creativity, boost physical energy level, promote emotional balance, increase performance on problem-solving tasks, and to treat anxiety, depression, and addiction. The practice of microdosing has become more widespread in the 21st century with more people claiming long-term benefits from the practice, forgive me for my stumbling over uh, one of those medical terms, um, but this is a this is a remarkable question. Basically, performance enhancing drugs for uh, not athletes, but for tech workers and others uh, who have jobs requiring them to sit down at their desk and maintain focus for long periods of time. Doctor Piper, this is not un, um, completely unheard of for me when I was growing up in in grade school. Increasingly, parents were giving Ritalin to their children uh, before important tests in order to help them with their focus, even if they didn't have ADD or ADHD as a diagnosis. Um, and so basically, you were using prescription medication as performance-enhancing drugs for test-taking. And um, in some way, caffeine and other stimulants are something of a form of this. But uh, what do you think? What? How do you respond to this question? How would you answer it? Well... Pastor Gallagher is right in the middle of all this, pastoring in Sunnyvale. So he, uh, this is a very important, I'm sure, for him pastorally, and I'm sure he has uh, uh, good insight on this that would be useful as well. Um, there's a big difference, though, between Ritalin or caffeine uh, and a uh, psychedelic drug, even microdosed. Um, uh, a, any, I don't think a Christian should use any um mind-altering substance. That would be my first first point, that even a minor dosage of a psychedelic is going to be altering the mind. Uh, and that's where I always go, even with, you say, recreative use of, of marijuana. Uh, but when the B is, when these people claim these long-term benefits, um, all the studies that are being done on, on marijuana, and I'm sure it's going to prove the same thing here, uh, a, their entrance, well, i got to be, one, their entrance uh, drugs, uh, but two, uh, they're creating all kinds of uh, major psychological problems. I've read that the, uh, every, I, I have not verified this, but all of the mass killers in the last few years have been young people, young people, mass killers have been using marijuana in addition to being an injury-level drug. I'm sure it's going to be the same uh, with uh, microdosing with psychedelic drugs. So for those two reasons, I would, as a pastor, would uh, always discourage. Uh, and then Addisee, it's against the law. And um, even if we don't agree with the law, uh, we're not, as Christians, allowed to break that law in order to enhance our uh, improvement. It, it It's getting to the point, again, where it, it becomes an idol. So we want to spend an inordinate amount of time in creativity or before a computer screen or whatever. we got to get back and, and look at our whole management of time. Uh, if any job we have and has us having on a regular basis to use some type of enhancement to accomplish that work, we've got to back up and look at our schedule and our priorities. Put things in perspective here. I mean, whatever you're inventing or coming up with in terms of technology and, and advancement, consider what you're doing. You're you're basically putting yourself under the influence of some foreign substance in order to produce some kind of new, uh, in, uh, new exciting. We can't call it a revelation, but some kind of. Uh, Product, a new exciting product. So, so let's go back to pre-Christian Europe. Who were the people that that would be turned to for the creation of new exciting products? It'd be the oracles, right? Who were doing what? Sniffing the fumes out of the depths of the earth and and claiming to be um, uh, in, enjoying 
uh, communication with the departed or with uh, with demons and and with demigods. I mean, it's almost there. You see a parallel here as our mm. culture continues to regress of uh, harming ourselves in order to and harming people that we put into positions of invention or uh, production. Uh, harming them, taking advantage of them, destroying their minds for the sake of some supposed benefit to the culture. And uh, it, it really is doctrines of demons, we might say, on this. And and that's immediately what came to mind, is this is an example of a regression in Western culture when we're appealing to drugs and uh, mind-altering, not performance-enhancing, but mind-altering substances to somehow push the envelope on technology and, and creative, uh, creative expression and creativity and different other products that entertain people for the most part. So I don't know. Do you think that's a, do you think that's kind of a tenuous connection I'm drawing or does that seem to make sense? Makes sense to me. All right. Well, even in the, under the Renaissance then, mm -hmm. as they were using uh, different forms of the occult yeah. uh, in order to uh, further purposes um, yeah, probably throughout the history of, of sinful mankind, people have been resorting to uh, idolatrous means in order to accomplish idolatrous ends. Yeah, including mind-altering and really dehumanizing substances. Uh, even in this case, I think we could denominate psychedelic microdosing under that uh, kind of activity. All right, our next question. Thank you, Cal, for the that question is very and by the way let's just our hearers please be praying for calvin as he's going through uh chemotherapy for very serious cancer that's right thank you our next question is from reuben stetcher of houston texas he asks how can we justify from the bible not from practical necessity or expediency the specificity of convention in the book of church order that is binding on the christians within the Presbyterian Church in America. So basically what he's getting at here is what would be the biblical justification for the non-biblical but otherwise constitutionally binding prescriptions regarding, for example, the purpose and number and size of interim committees, the use of parliamentary procedures, the precise percentage of votes necessary to pass an overture at General Assembly or elect an associate pastor, the three exclusive church planning models that must be followed, etc. How can we justify requiring the assembly, our presbyteries, and local congregations and sessions to abide by man-made conventions? Well, Ruben, All things a, must be done decently and in order. Well, there we go, Ruben. That <laughs> is, it's really a good question. Um, it is. And when the Confession of Faith in Chapter 1, Paragraph 6 deals with the um, absolute sufficiency of Scripture in all matters of faith and practice, uh, it then deals at the end with what uh, they referred to as circumstances with respect to worship and to church government. And there's principles there uh, for uh, how we would uh, go about applying these circumstances. There are not things revealed in the Bible. Uh, they, uh, the elders must uh, exercise wisdom, and they must be consistent with the Bible and for the good of God's people. Also, I won't get into it here, but I would encourage you to read Calvin's Institute's Book 4, uh, Chapter 10. He interacts there with the improper host of regulations put down by the Roman church and then deals with the church's right and prerogative in uh, establishing uh, principles for the proper working of the church. He appeals there, for example, to the letter that the uh, apostles and elders in Jerusalem sent. It's quite possible that some things in that letter were beyond scripture for the sake of peace at that time. He also mentions uh, head coverings as an instance of something that was uh, wise in a particular ecclesiastical situation. Um, so Zach began by quoting from 1 Corinthians 14, which is a verse that the framers used there, that all things must be done decently and in order. There's no way that a any group, public group, meets to conduct its business uh, that uh, may be done without regulations. 
And the regulations then are useful for unity, uniformity, uh, and peace. So the uh, things in our Book of Church Order, if you read the opening preface to the Book of Church Order, the very important biblical principles are laid down. And there really are quite few in number. Um, and Witherow's great book on the Apostolic Church, which is it, he lays down six biblical principles that must be met. Um, to have truly biblical church government. But how those principles are worked out uh, will depend on the place, the time, the people, the size of the denomination. So take, for example, the Bible does require a court broader than the local church. That has been called a uh, a presbytery, and that's the regional church. Uh, and then other denominations that are larger will have synods or general assemblies. This is simply a way uh, to conduct business of the church. It's also uh, the right, particularly of the innocent. Uh, these courts allow review. They also allow for appeal or complaints against a lower court if it has uh, abused uh, the rights of people in the congregation. So then how do you go about these things? Well, uh, we do have the biblical basis of committees in the book of Nehemiah, where we actually see there that because of the enormity of the task, a committee was uh, constituted in order to perform that business. So there is a principle that's actually in Scripture. But somebody has to set quorums and uh, amount of people that would serve on a committee, and, and what authority does the committee have? Um and so these are all things that are wise and prudent uh, for the proper uh, exercise of good church government. With respect then to Robert's rules, well, Robert's rules basically um, help anybody that's in a matter of trying to deal with issues to do so in an orderly manner. That's what Robert's rules does for us. And I'll make a little ad here for um Zach's Polity Group, they have uh, published an excellent uh, um, condensed, what do you call it? Uh, well, it's a blog post, but you can call it an article. Jacob Gerber wrote it, a wonderful piece on the biblical basis of parliamentary procedure. Right, and I'm talking about what y'all published. Oh, the little book on, um, yeah, the booklet that Jacob Gerber also wrote, where yes. he, he incorporates some of that material, but it's it's um, Parliamentary Procedure uh, for Presbyters, A Beginner's Guide, and it's available with the PCA Bookstore, Reformation Heritage Books, Westminster Seminary Books, Greenville Seminary's uh, Bookstore has a limited quantity as well. Um, yeah, that's a great resource. I bring it with me to Presbytery. <laughs> it's very helpful. So... <laughs> Then, again, for unity, we have to agree on, well, what's going to be the number of, uh, of votes for something to pass? Uh, is it a simple majority? Or uh, in more serious issues, then, it's going to be a, a much higher um, percentage, both at the church court level. Um, say for the General Assembly, it has a level of just a majority, but then it must be passed by... Uh, was it two-thirds of the presbyteries, this just guarantees that the whole church is involved in these things. But we could do nothing if we didn't have these uh, uh, principles by which we operate. And when we enter into uh, our covenant to be in a Presbyterian church, we do so uh, knowing that all bodies are going to have rules like this, it is interesting that in our ministerial vows, uh, we are in elder vows. We don't vow that every that we hold everything in that book to be biblical, uh, but we think it's consistent with uh, scripture principles. But we also vow to be in submission to the brethren, so that we're going to uh, live and operate by that. Now, the three exclusive church planting models that must be followed. Um, that can basically you know, go back to Scripture as well. Congregations plant congregations. So that in Asia, the church spread all out from Ephesus, uh, where Paul set up headquarters, but read in Acts that then 
the gospel spread. And when the gospel spreads, we know from the apostolic ministry, churches uh, are established. But we also have a principle of the Jerusalem church sending uh, the apostles out uh, after, I don't know what time they went out, but there's traditions now of the apostles starting churches uh, all over the world. And then, of course, Antioch uh, sent missionaries out to establish churches. And if you do evangelism, you got to establish a church. So you got to, again, have, well, how are we going to establish churches if we don't have rules for, for doing that? You know, one of the interesting features of this multifaceted question is uh, why Robert's rules? Why not one of the several other uh, manuals of procedure for deliberation? Robert's rules is really only isn't it like a uh, hundred years old? I mean, it's it's not really that old. It's it's fairly recent. Well, I think it's it's because um, Robert's rules, uh, uniquely among even the different ways of conducting a meeting, preserves the rights of the majority to rule and make decisions, while also preserving the rights of the minority to be heard and to file protest. Uh, decently and in order and in temperate language, and um, enforces that biblical principle we see in Acts 15 where you, the assembly gathers together to listen to one another. So it preserves the right of everyone to be heard, of course within reason. You can always call the question, which again preserves the rights of the majority to rule and to keep things moving. Um, but I, even as I, I did look at some of the other ways of conducting a meeting. And I, I'm convinced Robert's rules in its simplified formats and in, in its most strict formats um, is is perhaps, I might say, the most biblical expression of, of conducting formal business in a group of people. Uh, otherwise, you descend into chaos. Um, yes. And, and you know, there's a reason for each one of these little uh, details in parliamentary procedure. You might not be satisfied with that answer, but I refer you to my brother Jacob Gerber's material on this. I think it's it's uh, the best I've seen out there in connecting yeah. that, uh, that point A to point B here from the Bible to parliamentary procedure. That's good, Zach. And then let me just give you one concrete instance. So Robert's rules, you have a main motion, and you're allowed uh, an amendment to that motion, and you can make one amendment, uh, then a, a secondary amendment, but if you don't follow that, you suddenly have got chaos on the floor. And I've seen it happen more than one time where the moderator allowed uh, other amendments to come in. And suddenly you can't you can't do anything. You're, you're tied up in huge knots. Yeah, it's it's easy to get really confused. Um, I mean, you got a group of 100 people or even 50 people or 10 people just making sure you're all singing from the same sheet of music. <laughs> you all have the same thing in front of you is, is, is not an easy task. Uh, I'm always impressed by how uh, we do it in the PCA General Assembly. The big screens are our friends in that respect, but also how it's done in places like the OPC General Assembly and, and in other, uh, other synods and assemblies I've attended. Well, anyway, we've we spent a good amount of time on this. Our next question, also from Ruben, has to do with one of our favorite subjects, the Sabbath. He says, I am almost persuaded that Sunday is the new covenant Sabbath. I'm still confused about how that's compatible with Romans 9, but that's besides the point. I have many application questions. What should be done in the following scenario? Say, missionaries in an underground church plant in Iran or any Islamic nation have Sabbatarian convictions, but the national day of rest is Friday. Sunday is a standard work day. If the missionaries expect converts from Islam to keep the Sabbath on Sunday, their conversion will be discovered immediately, risking harsh persecution and even death. How should they proceed? Well, Reuben, that is really a, uh, a very serious question. Uh, let me just say in your parenthesis, I think you mean Romans 14. I think so, too. And, uh, and Colossians. And in my book, I, I deal with those passages, but uh, it's actually not a new question. Uh, and I'll get to that because the early church had to deal with the same thing. Uh, so you first you got the principle, you know, can the Sabbath day be changed culturally? And I think Colossians 2 does not allow us to change the Sabbath day. Now, I've been in Israel 
and what they've come up with there, not so much because of persecution, but because of work, is that they have changed their Sabbath to the seventh day. I am. Uh, I'm not comfortable doing that. I don't think we have the authority to do that. It does create tensions and difficulties, even where there's non-persecution. Um, in that situation, what I have recommended is it's, it, we have to deny ourselves. It might mean that we have to not work on Saturday for their religious purposes, and then we have to take our day off on Sunday which means we're not going to get a regular day off like rest of people in the culture. Uh, another way that's dealt with, though, in church history is there were a lot of slaves in the church, we know from Paul's letters. And so what the church often did was have its worship services uh, at night. And you see that, for example, uh, when Paul is going to, I think it was in Troas, where the have a night service and uh, he preached all night long and a guy fell asleep and fell out of the window. Uh, so... There are ways that even where people could not have the Lord's Day off, that the church could still worship on the first day of the week. And with respect, though, to your particular question, uh, with respect to missionaries in um, Islamic countries, um, I don't think that we should try to answer the question in terms of, is there going to be persecution? And I say that because, again, in the early church, Christianity was outlawed. Uh, they didn't quit worshiping together, and they didn't uh, ignore baptism, uh, knowing that often that would lead to persecution, and we have historical records of those uh, various acts of persecution, as well as many things were written against the church. The pagans knew their practices, um, underground churches uh, have to remain underground, um, but I don't know. I guess you're asking is if they met underground on the Lord's Day, that uh, that would open them up to persecution. Well, I don't see any difference between their meeting underground on Saturday Uh are on Sunday. It does mean that like the slaves, that Christians will have will not be able to keep the Sabbath unless they can manage to have that simply as a day off from their work. Uh, and in those cases, again, as with the slaves, the church patiently prays that God will bring deliverance and tries to accommodate those, by, as I said, by having their underground services uh, at night. Um, on the other hand, those who confess before men, I will confess before the Father in heaven. Um, there needs to be public profession of faith and baptism in the underground church. It must not be avoided because of uh, fear of persecution, not that you're flagrantly going to uh, flaunt it. But I think that that's not an argument against the Sabbath. What it simply opens up for us in God's providence is going to be situations is going to be very difficult. And if we're forced by the culture uh, to have to work on the Sabbath, um, in God's providence, we pray that he'll deliver people from that. And it's another serious reason to continue to pray for the conversion of the Islamic countries and the communist countries. It's difficult. Uh, I'm not going to uh, come down dogmatically on that, but it, whatever it is, it's not an argument against the Sabbath, as I as I understand it. It's an argument against how does the church deal with the Sabbath in situations of persecution. You might want to add anything, Zach. I don't have anything to add. I think you covered all the bases. It's it's a difficult situation. I've talked to missiologists about this. There are even discussions of uh, of this issue um from throughout church history and um and i and i think it's it's important how you pointed out that in the primitive church the apostolic church even there were a lot of slaves uh for whom did not have masters who would uh or yeah who would not have masters and householders who would uh recognize any right 
that they had not to work on one of the days of the week of their own choosing or of even God's choosing. So, um, yeah, I appreciate how you answered it, Dr. Piper. I don't have anything to add, not substantively anyway. Um, our next question, we actually have a set of questions from this anonymous Presbyterian in South Carolina. And he, uh, he's a frequent listener, and uh, we appreciate him giving us these questions. We'll start from the top. What was Jesus's point with the widow giving all her money, referring to Mark 12, 41 through 44, and Luke 21, 1 to 4? Some say he commended her as a positive example of giving. Others say he was pointing out the corruption of the Jewish leaders in Jewish temple worship, which allowed a widow to become so destitute and motivated her to give away money she needed to survive. So what's going on in this passage with the widow's might? Well, uh, I could say that Jesus often... Um deals with multiple problems in his uh, answers to questions. But because this was in the context of, of Christian giving and the matter of the heart, I do think he is getting here to the matter of the heart of the one who gives. And if somebody's simply giving a little out of surplus, that is condemnable whereas those that would give sacrificially um, are those that God honors. Good short answer. I think that hits on all the high points. We'll keep on pushing. Dr. Piper, are Isaiah 14, 12 to 21, and Ezekiel 28, 13 to 19 about the great adversary, Satan? Isaiah 14, 12 to 21, and Ezekiel 28, 13 to 19. So in Isaiah 14... 12 to 21, Jesus is dealing with uh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth. You have weakened nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. And it goes on on that thrust. Uh, I know that many Faithful commentators have taken this as a reference to Satan. I take it merely as a metaphorical application uh, to uh, the those who are oppressing uh, the Jewish church. Ezekiel 28 is a bit more specific in its language. Verses 13 to 19. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, etc. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and sin. You sin, therefore I've cast you uh, as profane from the mountain of God, and I've destroyed you, O covering cherubim, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they might see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I brought you brought fire from the midst of you. It's consumed you, and I've turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You've become terrified, and you'll cease to be forever. Now, here God's speaking to the leader of Tyre, which we see from verse 1. I think there could be analogies here to uh, Satan, uh, figures used to show what the leader of Tyre had done. So by those analogies, we can get some insight into the perfidy of Satan. But we also need to point out that Satan was not created in the Garden of Eden, nor was he placed by God in the Garden of Eden. And so again, let the context uh, speak to this. He wasn't an anointed cherub who covers. Um, And so I think that 
again, the best I'm willing to say, the most I'm willing to say is that uh, this is addressed to the king of Tar and the things that he uh, was doing and the analogies to Satan uh, to show his treachery. Uh, so we might, uh, from that, understand something of Satan's fall and pride, uh, but they're descriptive of the king of Tar. Again, a host of commentators, particularly the old Reformed commentators, will take both of these passages as referring to uh, uh, Satan's fall directly. I don't. Very helpful. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Well, a question from Twitter, or the platform previously known as Twitter, now called X. A married man professes faith and seeks baptism together with his unbelieving wife who is willing, even wanting to be baptized along with her husband, but very clearly does not profess faith in Christ as her Lord and Savior. Would it be proper to baptize her? Would it be proper to withhold baptism from her? What if the situation were reversed and it was the wife who professes faith and the husband who is willing and even wanting to be baptized despite the fact he's very clear he does not believe? This is a great question, and it's it one is. that came up in our membership class uh, recently just as a thought experiment, hypothetical, talking about household baptism. Well, I think we have to understand the significance of baptism with respect to uh, an adult in contrast to a believer. Baptism has all the significance for a, uh, of a of a baby, it has all the significance for an infant, but the primary reason we baptize our children is to uh, point out their incorporation into the visible church. Uh, they then have the promises of the covenant given to them, and that as the Spirit works in their lives, um, to regenerate them, that can be even in the womb or could be even the day they were baptized, uh, the full reality of baptism comes to play. Adult baptism uh, also must, in the first place, be a sign of being incorporated into the visible body. Uh, that does not take place with a spouse. The spouse has no right to baptism because the spouse has no right to uh, membership in the visible church, which is clearly spelled out as repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's great that the spouse will live in peace with the Christian spouse um, and will sit under the preaching of the word, but that adult has no right to the sign and seals of the, of the benefits of the covenant of grace. Okay, what about a teenage child? And we've dealt with that in a number of church planning situations. And my answer has been, if the child, even an, uh, an older child, um, has explained to him what baptism means, um, he's under the uh, headship of his father, who is a Christian, has every right to be baptized. If the child says, I do not want to be a part of the church, I do not want to receive baptism, then um, I, I have said no, then we won't baptize that child. But a teenager is still under his father's head, he's still in the covenant, and unless he's re already rebelling. So the analogy then is, in Titus, a teenager that rebels against the covenant is to be dealt with and eventually put out of the church. And that's where I would draw the analogy. All right. And so it's it's that last consideration there that would then carry over to the uh, the spouse not having a right to baptism in the situation initially uh, put forward by this anonymous here. In that not the an last. adult an adult can resist like an uh, not an adult child but a teenage child in the household can resist having the sign of covenant community membership put on him or her. But right. even if he or she does not believe, if he or she is obedient and does not resist his right. or her father's because uh, direction. Because he or she are a child of the covenant. Yeah, because there's a child of the covenant, whereas a spout, there's no such thing as a spouse of the covenant, though First right. Corinthians 7 does say that one spouse is, spouse is sanctified by the other. Well, he uses that word in two ways there. And so I it think does. that... The, that spouse is simply um, 
allowed to remain in the marriage. What what he's doing there is he's advising against divorce on the well, and also repealing what happened in Nehemiah, which I've never fully understood, but it's God's word, and that is in the old covenant, uh, the unconverted spouse uh, was not to remain in the marriage. Yeah. Whereas in the new covenant, the unconverted spouse may remain in the marriage. And that's what he means, I think, by the point of being sanctified. They're not put out as they were in the Old Covenant. Sure, sure. So the sanctification is not meant in the same sense that we would talk about our children are sanctified. Right, being holy. covenant children. It's a, different, it's a difficult issue to tease out. There's a lot of considerations there. I mean, the point I made to the membership class uh, was at the end of the day, could we possibly conceive of a situation in the United States anyway, in Western culture, as individualistic as we are, where uh, an unbelieving spouse would request baptism so that she or he could have uh, could identify with, you know, the believing spouse, even if they were very clear, I don't believe this, but I want to I want to go through what my spouse is going through. Um, you know, if, if, if we saw in a review of presbytery re or a review of session records, Dr. Piper, that a church administered baptism to such a one, would we, uh, reprimand that session for acting improperly? Or would we say, you know, this is a difficult issue. We leave it to the discretion of the session. What do you think would happen? I mean, have you heard of this in the PCA? I've never heard of it. No, understanding the nature of baptism is not a difficult situation. An adult is never entitled to baptism does not profess faith in Christ. But a teenager would not qualify as an adult in that sense. Right. Teenagers under the headship of their covenant headship of the father and uh, is uh, then entitled to those covenant benefits. Well, wouldn't the same principle apply, though, to a wife being under the covenant headship of her husband? She's under the headship of her husband. But, but she cannot be under headship. his covenant headship entitling her to baptism. Okay. I mean, even two unconverted people, the wife is under the headship of her husband, but it's not. I'm just trying to think through the whole uh, Cornelius being baptized, the Philippian jailer being baptized, even Lydia is a woman. So that's a little bit different than the two men being baptized together with their households. The Basic uh, argument on the household baptisms uh, is that in exactly what I'm saying, that yeah. any children in that household. Now, the question has also been wrestled with, and it's a bit more difficult, a slave in that household. Yep. Abraham's slaves were circumcised. Yes. Uh, but uh, I think, again, in the transition to the clarity with respect to baptism— I would not baptize even if we had a slave uh, under the under covenant baptism, because I think the pr principle is quite clear that the promise is to you and your children and those who are far off. Absolutely, good answer, Doctor Piper. That was helpful for me. I'm not. I mean, we didn't come down hard on anything in the membership class when the question was raised. It's more just as a thought experiment. Um, <laughs> the point I made was that children have a right to baptism uh, and teasing out that those principles of continuity between circumcision and baptism as the initiatory signs and rights of covenant community membership. So, all right, we will press on here or do we want to close our episode on this note? Yeah, let's close it here. Thorny issue. <laughs> Right. We've had a number of thorny ones today. Good. It was good. It is good. Yeah. Um, I, so, I really appreciate it. I, I would like uh, in the next episode to address this matter because I think it's getting very serious of on Christian nationalism. Oh, yeah. I think it'd be good. So uh, I'll put that in at the, the top of our list. So if you're listening, folks, and you want to hear Dr. Piper address the issue of Christian nationalism, uh, and there's a variety of definitions that we could assign to that term, then make sure you come back and listen to our February edition, Lord willing, of Faith and Practice. But until next time, thank you for tuning in. Send us your questions, and may God bless you as you go about uh, serving Him, glorifying Him, and enjoying Him in all that you do. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this edition of the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church. To submit your questions for the next Faith and Practice segment, please visit antiochpca.com slash podcast. For more information about Antioch, visit us on our website at antiochpca.com.